This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. When today's guest met a child who was separated from her parents at the U.S. border with Mexico, she was called upon to perform a speech-language assessment. What happened next prompted Alicia Fleming Hamilton to reflect on her role as a CSD professional. As a practitioner, you know, I went to school and studied on how to help kids talk and teach them their speech sounds and work on fluency and you know, you get into the job and you're thrust into so much more. And it's kind of navigating what are my responsibilities and roles, but also what is my ethical obligation as a human being who's participating in the system that has separated this girl from her family. The story is part of a new book from Asha Press called Exploring Cultural Responsiveness, Guided Scenarios for Communication Sciences and Disorders Professionals. Alicia worked as an editor on the book. Featuring stories and examples pulled from real life, the book covers subjects such as misdiagnosis, gender identity, implicit bias, African-American English, and more. Alicia joins me to share some of those stories pulled from the book and her personal life. I'm J.D. Gray. This is Asha Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA Professional Development. Recognize and combat microaggressions and support those who've experienced them with ASHA's new micro course series. ASHA member exclusive start the new year off with two free CE courses from this series in January. Visit on.asha.org slash free CE course to learn more. Alicia Fleming Hamilton is an SLP who works in Minnesota schools, and she's the editor of the new book, Exploring Cultural Responsiveness. The book is compiled from contributions by members of ASHA's Multicultural Issues Board. As editor, she curated articles and real-life scenarios, including incidents from her own life, from contributing audiologists and SLPs. A lot of the scenarios that I co-author are from my own personal experience, so they could be one specific case in its entirety, or a bunch of other cases uh, where I kind of fill in the blanks. And I, I like to say that not because I think I'm this super culturally competent person. I'm definitely on my road in the process. Um, but just to demonstrate that we all make mistakes all the time and that that self-reflection is a really critical piece in learning from those mistakes and getting better. The introduction to the book says cultural competence, quote, requires ongoing critical self-assessment and the continuous expansion of one's cultural knowledge, end quote. And I mentioned that to Alicia, that the book does point out this is a continual effort. Totally, yeah. And I think that's like, maybe if that's one of the biggest pieces we can kind of hit home is that I, I'm never going to wake up someday and be like, I am culturally responsive. I'm culturally competent. I made it. Awesome. What's next? I think the whole idea is that this is a commitment of a lifetime and it's something that you devote yourself to doing because, I mean, it improves your practice. It makes you a better practitioner, but because it's right, it's it's what we do so that we can serve people and really see their true humanity and their true value as unique individuals. If you listened to last week's episode of the podcast, you may have heard SLPs talking about the importance of cultural responsiveness and their hopes for 2021. Alicia acknowledges the book's release is timely and offers something for our current moment. I think specifically for me and my little bubble here, I live in a suburb of Minneapolis, and unfortunately, George Floyd was murdered here in May, and it really has provided another catalyst for these these talks about the idea that race and racism is is all over the ways that we function in the United States. And so I think 
being able to have a book like this with a functional way to look at how to reflect and how to improve and ways to work through it is a really critical, critical piece right now. And to be quite honest, even though I was very involved with the writing, I still, I still read the stories and I find different angles to look at. I find different things I could have done better or different ways to approach the scenarios. So I think that they're timely, but they're also sort of timeless, if you will. I understand some of the scenarios are from your own life, including the first one in the book. It's called Border Trauma and Blurred Lines, and it tells the story of a child separated from her family at the border. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that story, both how it's presented in the book and your personal experience. Yeah, so this one, I personally was a little hesitant to share it. So this story is about a little girl who crossed the border with her parents. They were fleeing violence. Her mother was told to sign paperwork on the Mexican side of the border while her father carried her across, and her mother was detained in Mexico. Her father was immediately arrested for illegally crossing the border and detained, and she was sent to emergency foster care system. And so somehow this sweet little girl made her way up to Minnesota. So you can imagine being less than two years old and traveling with no one you know in a foreign country where no one speaks your native tongue, all the way up to Minnesota from Mexico. That seems really scary already. And so she was placed in emergency foster care. And then our team was contacted to do an evaluation. So I work in birth to five services. And yeah, we... We struggled. In the book, Alicia uses a pseudonym, Shannon, and is part of an interdisciplinary early intervention team providing services to the child referred to as Lucia. This was prompted because Lucia's emergency foster mother said the child had stopped talking but responded to Spanish, and Shannon, as a bilingual SLP, was called in. The interaction is described in detail. Shannon brings a doll and speaks to Lucia in Spanish. Lucia responds. Their interaction leads Lucia to feed the baby doll with a bottle, and it leads Shannon to assess that Lucia's language skills are age-appropriate. At the end of the visit, Shannon gives the girl the doll, and then the book reads, Lucia began to cry. Shannon wants to see that Lucia's Spanish skills are maintained. She wants to see the child reunited with her parents, and she is deeply bothered by the border separation. The book reads, quote, Shannon was torn, end quote. And so I, as a practitioner, really struggled with wanting to insert myself to support her Spanish and be an advocate and an ally for her, and also because my heart was breaking for her, that she endured this On the administrative side, our social worker, who's amazing, was trying to contact any kind of family members. But because of what happened when she was separated from her family at the border, we were not permitted from ICE to contact her father. And so we have no contact information for him. And we had no ability to contact her mom because she was in Mexico. As a practitioner, you know, I went to school and studied on how to help kids talk and teach them their speech sounds and work on fluency. And, you know, you get into the job and and you're thrust into so much more. And it's kind of navigating what are my responsibilities and roles, but also what is my ethical obligation as a human being who's participating in the system that has separated this girl from her family. 
In the scenario presented in the book, the SLP, based off of Alicia, considered bending the rules to advocate for and work with the child. I asked Alicia if she could talk about that. What kind of thoughts an SLP might be having if they're feeling sympathetic or worried about the trauma a child might be experiencing and worried about the adverse childhood experiences, even if the SLP isn't, in that moment, seeing a language delay? Yeah, and I think that's a great question, and it's kind of the crux of this the story, right? In this particular case, I was so moved by her story that I thought, well, you know, I could bend the rules and I could say, like, I see a need or a potential need and continue to try to advocate for this student. But I also had to, you know, ethically, we're obligated to provide services and be really careful about when we're saying a kid has a need or a diagnosis. And every professional does that to the best of their ability. And so, like I said, I could have bent the rules and I could have said, well, based on X, Y, and Z, she would be at risk for a language disorder because of trauma later. But because I don't do that for every student that I work with, I work in Minneapolis and we have a really wide variety of cases and many of our students experience trauma and that that doesn't just give them a free pass for service, unfortunately. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to try to put away the pulling on my heartstrings in this story and say, if I saw this kid and I didn't know her background, would I give her service? And and the answer was no. But I'm a human being. And I thought about the other aspect of it in that, like, also as a practitioner, can I sit by and watch this happen in my community, in my country, to a fellow human being that I'm connected to? And the answer to that was also no. And so For me, it was about looking at other ways that were professional and appropriate to get involved in this process to ensure that we connect kids with their parents if they've been separated, or we educate the receiving team on how critical it's going to be for Lucia to maintain her Spanish skills so that when hopefully she's reunited with her family, she can still talk to them and communicate and have that bond. It's these little details that toe the line between wanting to do what's right and wanting to be professional and knowing how to do both. And it gets pretty tricky. And in the book, it says self-reflection is an important aspect of any professional practice. Is there anything you've learned from self-reflection since this time? Just reflecting again on this story, which I've read quite a bit, you know, as the editor and as the human who lived through it, there's never really the perfect approach. And I think it depends on, like, I probably given different points in my life, would have responded in different ways. And it doesn't make one response better than the other. It just has a lot to say about where I'm at in that situation, what resources I have, what knowledge I have, and things like that. So I think that self-reflection piece is just another way to grow in my knowledge and to continue to develop the skills that we all need and that, that are constantly evolving in our field. Asher released a statement in 2018 condemning the practice of separating children from their parents and asking the Trump administration to reunite families in a timely fashion. This was followed by a statement in 2019 to renew that call and put an end to the, quote, horrific living conditions, end quote. The statement reads, quote, this unacceptable situation is potentially setting them up for lifetimes of struggle. Often traumatized children require long-term comprehensive and sustained supports, including the treatment of resulting communication disorders, in order to successfully transition into adolescence and adulthood. According to the Associated Press, a court filing in December revealed over 600 children are still yet to be reunited with their parents after separation at the border. 
We're taking a quick break, and when we come back, Alicia shares another example from the book, this one about how the reaction of a clinical educator to an accent led to academic hurdles. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA Professional Development. Increase your self-awareness of how you contribute and respond to microaggressions with our new micro course series. ASHA member exclusive two free CE courses from this series in January. Visit on.asha.org slash free CE course to learn more. We're rejoining our conversation with Alicia Fleming Hamilton, editor of Exploring Cultural Responsiveness. I asked Alicia for a story that stuck out to her from her work on the book. I think it's covered in a couple stories, but another one of the ones that was submitted to us personally was about trying to be counseled out of graduate programs. So being a graduate student who was culturally and linguistically diverse, so either spoke a different language or wasn't from our kind of like I'm saying this in quotations, which you can obviously not see through a podcast, but in quotations like mainstream white female. And so as they entered these graduate programs with these additional skills, right, being culturally diverse, having multiple languages, um, the knowledge of that and, and the experience of being a bilingual or someone who is in school and isn't part of the dominant culture there were quite a few instances where people were either discriminated against because they were demonstrating an accent or speech that wasn't, quote, mainstreamed, which, again, is discriminatory, or because they had some cultural differences. We highlighted quite a few of those in terms of supervisor situations where there were cultural differences on how authority was seen or perceived and then how that supervisor-supervisee relationship worked, or clinical educator. Is there one, a specific one that stands out in your memory? Um, yeah, so there was one, I want to, I think it's towards the end. It was a student who, so it's clinical education of students from diverse linguistic backgrounds. And so in this particular case, there's a student named Fatima. So she was from Cuba, moved to the U.S., and took ESL classes at her community college, Then she went on to a degree in mathematics. And while she was there, she became a tutor. And as she was there, as she was tutoring, she kind of felt self-conscious about her accent. So she had Spanish-influenced English. And so she went to a speech clinic and asked if they could do accent reduction. And they were like, you don't need it. You know, we, we don't think that you need it, which again, like kudos to them for recognizing that just because someone has an accent doesn't mean they need therapy or need to remediate it. She goes in and then after she was in the clinic and she saw the work they did, she, she became really interested in the field. So long story short, she applies to an undergrad program with a scholarship and she's completing the program. And as she's doing her clinical rotations, she's getting pushback from a supervisor who is sharing the feedback about Fatima's work with her co-treater, who is a fellow student. And then she finds out that a family that she's treating has asked for her to stop being their therapist because of her, quote, accent. And then as she's at her final conference, the clinical educator gives her penalties because of her accent and also is trying to counsel her into going to a graduate program that has more, quote, students like her. So basically a program that has more bilingual speakers that might be more diverse. This really highlights that idea that 
whiteness is this cultural constant that we have in the United States. And, and I will say right away, um, and I should have said this in the beginning that I am a white cisgender woman. And so I profit and I benefit from this idea that the white cisgender culture is the quote norm in the United States. And I think this case is an illustration that those things can be harmful and they can turn people away from our profession. And they're actually not accurate. Fatima should have been able to go to whatever graduate program she was admitted to. You don't have to be a native speaker of a language to be a uh, competent and successful speech language pathologist. I also like people to think of the flip side, you know, do you think that because you're an English only speaker that you can't work with students who speak other languages? Well, the answer is of course not. And we wouldn't see a lot of our caseload, especially in the schools, right? If we only saw kids who, who spoke or were exposed to English. And again, some of these stories are sad because it's shocking that this happens, but I think in doing this project, we realized after sharing each other's experiences and stories and having people share their own stories with us that unfortunately this happens pretty frequently and we need to illustrate that and we need to talk about ways to make it stop and to draw people's attention. Because I think in this case, particularly, it could have been that the clinical supervisor was trying to, again, air quotes, trying to help Fatima but was really her intention of helping the impact of that was really harmful for Fatima in wanting to continue in the field and for losing a lot of confidence in her abilities. So I think that was another powerful story. And one of the things highlighted here in the debriefing section is the power dynamic. Yeah. So the clinical educator holds power over a student in a variety of different ways. You know, they serve as a mentor role. So you look up to them for guidance and leadership They are ultimately in charge of your grade, which is pretty important when you're in an expensive graduate program that you need to complete successfully to get a job and pay for your life or your loans or to actually practice. And then, you know, there's also this cultural power that her supervisor had in this specific case where her supervisor was of this, you know, dominant culture. Her supervisor was white. She was a female. She was what the majority of SLPs in ASHA are, and she represented that. And so she held that power, that lived knowledge and experience over Fatima, who brought this this beautiful diversity of experiences and practices and perspectives, but that power dynamic never really got addressed or never really got negotiated during this process. And and that can be really hard, too. Alicia, you spent a lot of time with these stories, the different scenarios, coming up with questions. What do you hope people take from the book? You know, our idea for this was not to be this, like, boring clinical text where you had to get your major coffee and, and read it. What we wanted is we wanted to have this book that felt inviting but was mature and serious enough for the cases presented that people across the spectrum of their career could really get into. So I'll give a couple examples. A student who is in graduate school who's really, you know, kind of budding in their career could open up a page and just read a case study and go through and kind of work through their own emotions and work through their own 
responses and, ooh, did I have a knee-jerk reaction to that? Why was that? And write in the book and kind of really evaluate using those self-reflective practices. And, And then also a practitioner who's been working for 25 years in the same setting to be able to open up a case study that maybe isn't in their area of expertise and to look at that go through, reflect, and pull some skills that they could use in their own practice. Like, huh, you know, I never even thought about having posters up that reflected all cultures, or I never even considered adding gender pronouns to our intake sheet. That's something really inviting that I can do for all of my clients. Or even asking clients what cultural strengths they bring and making the power dynamic more equal in those settings. There's a lot at play, and I think I think we just want to make it accessible for everyone and just a tool that people can use for self-reflection and growth. This is really just a way to continue to cultivate that and to hopefully foster this curiosity to continue to grow those skills across not only our career, but even into our personal lives and interactions with people. What we do as professionals is so meaningful and so humbling, really, to be able to, and I'll speak to my own experience as a home visitor, to be invited into a person's home and their personal life is such an intimate and humbling experience to really see people in their most private spaces. And then for them in in those most vulnerable moments to ask me for help. You know, I really, really try to bring that idea with me when I do my practice and to say, it's such an honor to serve you. How can I do that better? How can I be better every time? And for me, like I said, after reading these stories multiple times, I just think every time I read them, I learn something more that can make me a better practitioner and and honestly, like a better human, hopefully. You can find a link to the book at the blog post for this episode at leader.pubs.asha.org. At the time of this episode's publication, the book is on sale for 20% off. And find more resources related to cultural responsiveness through ASHA's Office of Multicultural Affairs, or OMA. OMA helps ASHA members address culture and language and diversity among professionals and those with communication disorders or differences. To learn more about what OMA is doing to help with issues such as diversity recruitment, visit ASHA.org and search for Multicultural. Alicia also wanted to highlight the work of ASHA's Multicultural Issues Board in making the book, specifically ASHA staff member Karen Beverly Ducker, and Alicia wanted to mention her co-editing team. Wendy, Annie, and John, and they are listed on the cover as well because they did so, so much work, and not just editing work and, and critical resource and research work, but just human work of helping me work through some of these stories Like I said, I'm a white woman, and so I have this perspective that is not of someone who is unfamiliar with the dominant culture. And so to have Wendy and John and Annie's expertise and their, just their kindness and their patience in teaching me was, was invaluable. And they, they're amazing professionals. That's it for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks. 
ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA Professional Development. Increase your self-awareness of how you contribute and respond to microaggressions with our new micro course series. ASHA member exclusive, two free CE courses with this series in January. Visit on.asha.org slash free CE course to learn more. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm JD Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.